It's one of the most famous, and at the same time, one of the most controversial cases in ufology. Travis Walton is now a name that has become synonymous with the alien abduction phenomena, thanks to in no small part to the mass media attention his case received at the time. This profile was only raised further with the release of the 1993 movie Fire in the Sky, which chronicled the events surrounding his abduction. But for all those who believe Walton's story, there seemed to be an equal number of people who doubt his authenticity, and both he and the other witnesses to the events that fateful night have come under personal attacks by those claiming they faked the whole thing as part of some money-making scheme. Walton's story has left researchers, skeptics, and law enforcement asking countless questions regarding their respective fields of interest. But the question everybody seems to want to know is just where was Travis Walton between November the 5th and November the 10th, 1975? Was he, as some have suggested, hiding out in a cabin or a tent deep in the forests of Arizona, waiting to re-emerge with tall tales of aliens? Or was he indeed carried away by some unknown force for reasons that still elude us? In this DD video, we're going to break down key points in the Travis Walton case. It's not our aim to prove Walton is telling the truth, nor are we here to suggest he's a liar. But until he or his colleagues come forward admitting it is a hoax, or some previously undiscovered evidence emerges that proves he is telling the truth, we are left with deciding for ourselves what we want to believe. So let's delve into the case of Travis Walton. November the 5th, 1975. The following account comes from Travis Walton and six of his co-workers who were with him the day his experience began. However, it must be pointed out that his co-workers can only account for the events up to when he claims to have been taken. As well as the 22-year-old Walton, the crew comprised of Mike Rogers, who was their boss and was a personal friend of Walton, Ken Peterson, John Glett, Steve Pierce, Alan Dallas, and Dwayne Smith. The seven men were working as part of a timber stand improvement crew in the Apache Stingraves National Forest near their hometown of Snowflake, Arizona. The contract was one of the most lucrative Rogers and his men had received from the Forest Service, but was behind schedule and this put a great deal of pressure on them to work longer hours. When the men broke for the day, just after 6pm, they climbed into their truck and started heading home when they saw a strange glow through the trees in the darkness. At first, the men thought that there was a fire burning in the woods, but as they drove near to investigate, they were shocked to find a large, silvery disc-shaped craft, approximately 8 feet wide and 20 feet high, hovering above a clearing. Shocked at the sight, Rogers hit the brakes, but before the truck had even stopped, an excited Walton had leapt from the cab and rushed towards the disc to get a closer look, despite pleas from his co-workers to come back. From the truck, Rogers and the remaining five men watched as a beam of blue light struck Walton, sending him careering about 10 feet through the air and landing on his back. In that moment, Rogers and the others were convinced the disc had killed Walton, and Rogers floored the gas pedal of the truck, fearing they would be next. Shortly after driving away, Rogers stopped the truck and convinced them that they could not just leave Walton there, dead or alive. They returned to the scene, but found no trace of the disc or Travis. Not knowing what else to do, they drove into town and decided they had no choice but to call the police. The Investigation 
After contacting the police, Rogers and the others were first questioned by a local deputy before they met with Sheriff Marlon Gillespie, who noted that the men were certainly disheveled and frightened. That night, the men led Sheriff and a handful of deputies back to the spot where they had said the object had been, but they failed to locate him or indeed any evidence of the disc. They returned to town and began organizing a larger search the next day. It was winter and temperatures in the mountains were known to plummet below zero, so there was indeed a degree of urgency to locate Walton quickly. Dogs and even helicopters were eventually used in the search and it became one of the largest in Arizona state history, but again, no evidence of Walton or the disc was found. As the search continued, Rogers and the others found themselves being questioned more and more by police in a manner that indicated they suspected foul play. Even the police in the town, many of whom they had known their whole lives, were also beginning to mutter their suspicion that they were hiding the truth that one of them, either intentionally or accidentally, had killed Walton, hidden his body, and then concocted the story of the UFO. Amidst the accusations, the Forest Service also terminated their contract and gave it to another crew. Given the seriousness of the situation and their extraordinary account of what happened that day, the police decided to bring in a polygraphed expert named Cy Gilson to administer a lie detector test. In their initial questioning by police, the men seemed eager to take a polygraph test to prove what they were saying was true. However, as they began to suspect that they were now suspects, they began to fear that they were being set up, and so were reluctant to take the test, although they eventually agreed. While one of them, Alan Dalis, couldn't be read accurately by the machine, all five of the others, including Rogers, passed the test, which only fueled the interest of the media. Unfortunately, the test did not put an end to the accusations. Almost immediately, questions over how the test was performed were being brought up by skeptics in interviews, and even some of the investigating police officers. The fact that Dallas was the only one who came back inconclusive was also of interest to the police since Walton and Dallas were known to have had altercations in the past. This led them to suspect he had been the one who killed Walton. Then on the night of November the 10th, 1975, Walton's sister received a phone call that changed everything. It was from Travis Walton. Walton's account. It had been five days since Walton had disappeared and he was badly shaken up on the phone, but managed to explain that he was at Exxon Garage in the town of Heber, and he had no idea how he got there. When his family drove to the garage to pick him up, he had no idea that five days had passed. Attempting to recall what he remembered after he had been hit by the light, he told his family, When I woke up, I thought I was in hospital. I was on a table on my back, and as I focused, I saw three figures. It was weird. They weren't human. They looked like fetuses to me, about five feet tall, and they wore tight-fitting tan-brown robes. Their skin was white like a mushroom, but they had no clear features. Walton then explained that he felt an overwhelming sense of panic and reached for a transparent tube-like object nearby. He attempted to smash it and use it as a weapon, but it wouldn't break. However, the beings were startled enough to scurry away, leaving him alone in the room for a short while. Then a fourth being appeared, different to the previous ones, in that he was more human-looking but wore a transparent helmet that resembled a fishbowl to Walton. This being appeared to have a calming influence over Walton and led him into an adjacent room. Walton then explained, 
There was a high-backed chair in the middle of the room, with buttons on one arm and a lever on the other. The man left as suddenly as he had arrived, and I began playing with buttons. I pushed the lever, and the scene outside suddenly changed. I felt we were moving, I know we were in a spaceship, then things went black again. Walton then explained that after he blacked out, the next thing he knew, he was lying in the road near the garage outside Heber, and he managed to catch a glimpse of the craft as it silently took off. With the police being unable to charge any of them with any crimes, despite ongoing suspicion, amongst their ranks that the men had faked the whole thing, they reluctantly closed the case. But researchers, journalists, and skeptics hounded the men and swamped the town much to the chagrin of the locals who vented their frustration on Roger's crew. As for Walton, people who knew him reported a marked change in his behaviour after the incident, and was more withdrawn than before, but if any of them thought the whole affair was over, they were wrong. They were now on trial in the court of public opinion. Polygraph Woes A polygraph or lie detector works by recognising physiological changes in the body due to a psychological stimuli experienced when humans feel or sense danger. The autonomous nervous system, when entering these stimuli, instigate the flight or fight response, resulting in the body undergoing physiological changes which the polygraph then detects. Because there is a risk to being uncovered, lies can trigger these responses which the machine detects. Very soon after his reappearance, Walton was quickly given a polygraph test, the result of which were eagerly awaited after the first test on the others had revealed such startling results. The test was administered by private investigator John McCarthy, who was hired by the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO, and the National Enquirer. But unfortunately for Walton, McCarthy concluded that Walton was being deceptive. APRO was not satisfied with the results, however, noting that Walton was still in a highly agitated state, and that this probably affected the results. They decided not to publish the results, and instead conduct another test at a later date. This time Walton passed the test, and APRO and the National Enquirer published the results. This understandably generated enormous interest, and APRO especially were quick to capitalise on it, declaring the whole affair as one of the most important abduction cases in history. However, the publicity the case was generating also attracted the skeptics, and among those that descended on the small town of Snowflake was Philip Klass. Klass had developed quite a reputation amongst the UFO community, becoming known as the Sherlock Holmes of UFOlogy, for his forensics and determined approach to uncovering the truth. Later, Klass would be accused of effectively conducting a witch hunt to prove that the men were lying, especially when he uncovered the first failed test. He also accused Walton of using certain countermeasures such as controlling his breathing during the second test, and criticised the types of questions being asked. The polygraph test became crucial evidence for both sides of the argument, yet neither would be satisfied with the results. In 1993, Cy Gilson, who had conducted the first test on Rogers and the others, while Walton was missing, administered another test on Walton, Rogers and Dallas, whose results had been inconclusive originally. With the newer methods, all three men passed the test, but the critics again accused the questions of being designed to help the men pass. Science and skepticism writer Michael Shermer criticised Walton's claims, saying, I think the polygraph is not a reliable determiner of truth, 
I think Travis Walton was not abducted by aliens. In both cases, the power of deception and self-deception is all we need to understand what really happened in 1975 and after. The case for it being a hoax. So, just why do Class and other skeptics doubt Walton and his co-workers so vehemently? Class himself put forward the theory that the entire thing was part of an elaborate plot to allow the Seven crew to get out of their contract with the Forest Service. As already stated, the men were behind schedule, and if they didn't meet the obligations of their contract, they would incur financial penalties. If this was the case, then they succeeded, since the Forest Service did indeed terminate their contract, which allowed them to walk away from the job without paying the penalty. They would also have an incredible story with which to then sell to tabloid newspapers in order to make up the money they had lost. And there is no denying that Walton and the others did profit from the whole affair. Walton himself received $2,500 from the National Enquirer for the best UFO case of 1975, while the six others shared an additional $2,500. This greatly added to the suspicion that the men were lying about the incident in order to make money, while those who believed their story add that the incident cost them a lucrative contract and they had to make that money up somehow. Nevertheless, according to one of the crew, Steve Pierce, Class saw an opportunity to try and get him to say it was all a hoax, by offering him $10,000. Pierce refused, saying he knows what he saw. An alternative version of Class's theory was circulated by members of the local police in Snowflake, who carried out the initial investigation and search. They believe the same motive as Class, but add that Walton and Rogers conspired to dupe the others into believing they were looking at a UFO and would probably set up a balloon with lights on it, before Walton acted out what the others saw. This would make them ideal witnesses. But regardless of whether they were all in on it, or whether it was just Rogers and Walton, the question remains, why create a story about a UFO and alien abduction, when there were so many alternative, less spectacular, and more believable ways to get out of a contract? What could have motivated them to think UFO? Many point to an airing of TV movie two weeks earlier, chronicling the Betty and Barney Hill abduction as being the inspiration. But all the skeptics really had to do was look into Walton's past and they would see that UFOs were a big part of his life. His father was an avid believer in UFOs and it was reported that he left his mother to pursue his interest in them when Walton was a child. Walton's brother was also well known for telling stories of being chased by aliens while growing up. Walton himself retained his father's interest in UFOs, even before his alleged abduction, and Rogers told investigators during the missing days that Walton ran out of the vehicle because he was a UFO freak, and was probably excited by it. Some UFO researchers have also argued that Walton's story is rather inconsistent with other abductions. Firstly, why did the UFO make no effort to stop the others in the truck? Most UFO abduction cases never involve witnesses. Secondly, the memories Walton was left with were clear to him without hypnotic regression. Walton did undergo regression, but according to him on his website in 2019, I did not recall any experiences under hypnosis that I could not remember before. The hypnosis did help me verbalize my experience in greater detail, without being overwhelmed by anxiety, but did not help me regain any lost memories. When it boils down to it, we have to decide how much weight we want to put behind the polygraph test. 
which is the primary evidence supporting Walton and the others' claims. As we have already discussed, there are a number of criticisms to the test, and we know it's not infallible, which is why it cannot be used in a court of law, but that does not mean that the men are necessarily lying. We also have to remember that over 40 years later, Walton and the others remain adamant that what happened that night was the truth. While the release of the movie helped reinvigorate interest in the case, it also muddied a number of details about what they claim happened that night, since several details were changed or added by Paramount Studios in order to single it out from other alien abduction movies circulating at the time. Walton Today Travis Walton continued to be a significant part of the UFO circuit, speaking at numerous events and on documentaries covering his case. His book, Fire in the Sky, was first published in 1978 and continues to be one of the most read alien abduction books of all time. However, Walton still faces a hail of criticism and accusations of faking the entire incident, with the advent of the internet only further fueling the debate. In an effort to prove once and for all he was telling the truth, he made the ill-conceived decision to participate in the Fox TV show, The Moment of Truth, in 2008 where he underwent yet another polygraph test. In the climax of the show, Walton was given a verdict that he was lying and seemed genuinely shocked when the results were announced. Shortly after the show, Walton issued a response stating that he now knew the methods used in the test were obsolete ones that weren't accepted in most US states. He also accused the producers of editing the finished show in such a way as to make it appear the audience turned on him after the results although he claims he was still cheered by many of them. In 2012, Steve Pierce decided to break his silence and speak to Open Minds TV about the events of November 5th, 1975, and about Philip Klass, offering to pay him $10,000 to say he was lying. It was a welcome show of support for Walton particularly, after the appearance on Moment of Truth. In recent years, Travis Walton has pushed for a new movie to be made about his story, but this time, he wants far more input in the writing of the script in order to make it as accurate as possible. He also maintains a website where he answers questions people have about his experience. New support. If it seems like internet forums and TV shows seem determined to discredit Walton, it should also be pointed out that he continues to win over support for his claims, and this has led to new theories being suggested by UFO investigators and even Walton himself. In 2017, UFO researcher J.P. Robinson admitted that until he met Walton, he was skeptical about the authenticity of the story. Speaking in the British newspaper The Daily Express, Robinson said, After having spent quality time in his presence and talking privately about his experience, I can only conclude that this man really did meet these beings aboard their ship. What wasn't clear before was the question of why would they zap him with that beam of light to begin with? It's all a bit too sci-fi for me. However, Robinson now believes this was not intentional. Travis was in the wrong place at the wrong time and should never have been stood so close to such an incredible machine. He himself explains that he was just about to turn back to the truck seconds before being struck. It now seems that as the craft was preparing to take off into the night sky, it inadvertently knocked Travis for six, killing him in the process. Yes, you read that right. Travis told me that he believes he was actually dead. So now we get to the real question, which so many people ask, 
Why did they take him on board? Well, according to the man himself, they took him in in order to save his life, and this they clearly succeeded in doing. Robinson finished by saying, Travis Walton has made me believe again, or should I say no again, that we truly are in the midst of something remarkable, and it's only a matter of time before the bigger picture is revealed. <laughs>